I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, when nature breaks the law, with Mary Roach and her new book, Fuzz. Mary Roach is the author of six previous works of non-fiction, almost all of which we've talked about on previous Little Atoms. Uh, most recently, Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War. Her writing has appeared in Outside, National Geographic, and the New York Times Magazine, among other places. And today, we're going to be talking about Mary's latest book, which is called Fuzz in the US and Animal, Vegetable, Criminal in the UK. The subtitle of both of which, which gives you an idea of what the book is about, When Nature Breaks the Law. Mary, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you so much, Neil. Tell us a little bit more about what the idea is behind this one. Well, this is a a book about, essentially, it's wildlife crime prevention. The the technical term for this science is human-wildlife conflict, but I decided it would be more fun to frame it in terms of the actual crimes, and I'm putting quotation marks around the crimes because obviously animals can't read the law books. They They don't. They're just animals being animals. They do, however, commit murder, manslaughter, home invasion, breaking and entering, trespassing, jaywalking, vandalism, littering. They do all of that and to humans' annoyance and... So it's a book about uh, what do we do about that? How can science help? So the book is broken down. We have the felony crimes in the beginning, murder, manslaughter, et cetera, and then the, the misdemeanors uh, in the second half. So that's really what, what the book is about. And I was delighted to see at the very beginning, you allude to the um, the book by uh, Edward Pace and Evans about the, um, the criminal prosecution and capital punishment of animals, which I also own and absolutely love. And indeed, prosecuting animals for ostensibly human crimes is something that we've done for centuries, obviously. And in this book, you talk about, you know, how that's, you know, we're obviously not taking animals to court anymore. Um, But yeah, why did we used to do it? I did actually, in the course of reporting the book, uh, stumble onto a situation in India where a bunch of donkeys had been chowing down on some new landscaping, uh, some saplings and other plants. And the owner had been, the owner of the donkeys had been warned and he didn't do anything about it. So they put the donkeys in jail. (laughs) They took them off to jail. So 
Uh, and that, that is the only instance I found of, um, of animals being uh, actually treated as though they were humans, uh, according to human, human laws. Otherwise, yes, it's something from centuries past. The example that I gave in the book was this kind of amazing situation in 1659 in a province in northern Italy, where caterpillars had been coming in and eating the crops, eating the leaves, as, as caterpillars will do. And the city fathers posted summons on the trees adjacent to this farmland, summoning the caterpillars to court on a set date and stating in this summons they would be, <laughs> that the caterpillars would be assigned legal representation. And this never happened. Obviously, the caterpillars did not come to court. They'd pupated by then. They were butterflies or moths and were no longer chowing down on the lettuces or whatever else. So it seemed to have resolved itself. And that I think is, is part of why this was done. Um, it was a way for the people in power in the community to say, we have dominion even over nature. We control everyone and everything. What they did, even though the caterpillars were no-shows in court, uh, they made it, they went through the legal proceedings anyway, and they said, we shall assign an alternate plot of land for the enjoyment of the caterpillars. And so they will leave our land alone. And of course, because the caterpillars, as I said, had become butterflies and moved on, it appeared as, it appeared as though the problem was solved, which was probably very impressive to the populace. My God, they can even control the caterpillars, these guys. So it was kind of a, sh a show of power and maybe wisdom for the populace. Uh, it, it, that's how the author, uh, one of the explanations the author gave for that rather odd approach and indeed we you know we would like to think we were more enlightened nowadays but most of the occurrences you talk about in the book are instances where human beings have basically encroached on animal spaces we've built too far pulled down too many forests and have, have basically gone where are rubbing up against animals in in ways that perhaps we weren't in the past i don't know if you've seen but just as we're as, as we're recording this there's been uh, people tweeting about an incident i think in argentina where um there's been some uh, posh gated community built on this land and capybaras have come back and and have basically gone in and have started like vandalizing and causing havoc in this uh, in this area which again it seems like you know nature is healing as we uh... I love it when it happens to the rich people I don't know <laughs> yeah. it just it was the same with the, the the macaques in Delhi because the rich rich people are the only people who can afford to have land and open spaces with trees and of course the monkeys love that so they're going from the trees to the rooftop to the balcony in the window in through the door <laughs> and ransacking the kitchen that's another instance of that but i was going to say yes it, it is an instance of us going in and setting up shop where animals have originally have have been have always been and what, what was one thing that was interesting to me um one of the approaches with um blackbirds descending by the millions sometimes by the millions tens of thousands onto fields in north and south dakota here in the u.s where sunflower seed is grown basically bird seed. <laughs> They're trying to keep birds from eating bird seed, which is kind of a, a tall order. But one of the approaches was and is to one of the better approaches, rather than just trying to kill massive numbers of them, to build what's called a lure plot. So you plant something else equally appealing, it's cheap to maintain, and you let them hope that they'll go there. So you sort of distract them with something more delicious. So the plot, the, uh, the approach that the, the caterpillar uh, the, the people in the caterpillar scenario had taken 
was a, is actually something that can work. And it's so much better to try to change the environment or, or change human behavior than it is to try to persuade animals not to do what they're doing. Talking about the blackbirds, it's it's fascinating how you talk in the book, obviously, we're talking about the US here in the main, how, you know, nowadays, we'll talk in a little while about how you go out with a guy who's tracking cougars in California. And now, of course, the emphasis on human and animal interactions is about conservation is about you know ringing and and tracking animals fundamentally for their benefits back in the day in the u.s anybody that works for you know the government's wildlife services was fundamentally about protecting human beings and human beings crops and economy from animals so it's it's, yeah. it's fascinating to see how often people who you would have thought were interested in nature from a conservation perspective were going about the business of basically murdering thousands and thousands of animals yeah, yeah. They, there was a uh, back in the day, in the early part of the last century, there were organizations, government organizations, with titles like the Division of Economic Ornithology, which essentially came down to studying birds to figure out what are they eating, which birds are eating our crops, and how much. So, where should we focus our efforts? And the goal being to prevent damage to the crops to support agriculture. And so there's all these people who who love birds who became ornithologists and then who went out into the world seeking a job and got hired by the Division of Economic Ornithology and realized part of what their job would entail is figuring out how best to destroy these birds that were stealing the the wheat or the sunflower seeds or the rice or whatever was was being grown. So uh, you see that over and over, people who studied wildlife biology as a major here in the U.S., often find that the jobs available put them into some ethically awkward and and sad situations. Going right back to the beginning of the book, you start by attending a course uh, for forensic investigators of large animal attacks. And we're thinking bears and mountain lions, cougars here. Tell us something about what you did there. Sure. That was a five-day class that I was able to sit in on, well, take, and uh, uh, called WART, W-H-A-R-T is the acronym, a terrible acronym. It stands for Wildlife Human Attack Response Training. And other than myself, everyone there worked uh, for some kind of a wildlife management agency. A lot of them were from the West, where we have more bears and cougars. Many of them from Canada as well, a lot of bears up in Canada. And so these were these folks were learning how to set up a basically a, a crime scene and, a, and gather evidence. Very similar techniques to what you would uh, see if you found a, a person that had been murdered by another person. So they're securing the scene, first of all, they're, you know, with the, with the yellow tape and everything. The first order of business is of uh, to determine what species uh, before you get around to trying to get the individual to figure out the individual that that made the attack you have to you're you're looking at what species was it a human was it a cougar was it a wolf was it a bear and we did that by uh they had the the people who put on the uh, training had these soft touch mannequins that they had doctored with apparently hacksaws and red paint (laughs) They'd done a really impressive job of the gore, the gore that is typical of these different attacks. And they, the, the mannequins, each one was based on an actual victim of a, a wildlife attack, fatal wildlife attack. 
So you're so in, initially we were learning about what do bears typically do when they go after a person? Well, they they do what they do when they fight with themselves. So they they'll go teeth to teeth and they go for the face. The face is lightly furred. So horribly, that's what they'll do if they are attacking a person. It's so rare that they attack a person. It's usually a defensive situation. They're not, I mean, we aren't their prey. They're omnivores. They're eating nuts and berries and seeds and insects and sometimes fish. They're, they're just, we are not their prey, but sometimes we get in the way, we get between them and some food that they want, or they feel threatened, or we, somebody has a dog. So I just want to say it's very, very rare, but when it does happen, it's just ghastly. Those mannequins were not pretty. Well, I was going to say, so you mentioned that they're trying to set up a forensic scene around a find, around a body, the same as they would if it, you know, if it was a a human murder scene. But if you find somebody out in the woods, mutilated or in a, I guess, often in a, you know, in a severe state of decomposition, how do they know that it's Yogi Bear rather than Ted Bundy that's done it? Well, there's often with a bear... There's you know, big bites taken out of, uh, you know, often from the shoulders up. And bears, their teeth are designed for grinding. They're mol- they've got molars for kind of grinding up things. They don't have the, you know, the, the cougars got these sharp, very sharp scissors-like teeth. So it's a very clean kill. It's very messy with a bear. For that to have been a human would be quite unusual. I mean, humans don't, I mean, sometimes a, a human killer will take a trophy, but it, it's usually, it wouldn't be like a piece of the shoulder or the eye. So if that were a human, uh, that would, that would be quite spectacularly barbaric. So they, they tend to be very gory, messy bites. And a cougar is a very telltale kind of killing bite to the neck with some puncture wounds. So the claws holding the, holding the prey while they move in for the bite. So it's, I mean, the person was very badly decomposed. I guess it would, it would certainly make things more challenging. But one thing we also have to, to look out for, if you find a body in the woods and it appears that an animal has been eating it, you have to look at the bleeding and the bruising around the wound to tell if was this gnawing and chewing done during the attack or afterward. In other words, a scavenger could have caused those Marks And there was a case we were told about where a guy had died of an overdose in his car, a bear had pulled him from his car and chewed on him and left him. And it wasn't until they discovered the you know, needle marks, the, the needle in the floor of the truck and a uh, needle mark between the toes, they realized it, and it was an overdose. The guy had died of an overdose. So if they had captured a bear and killed it, it wouldn't have been good justice right there. Later in the book, you look at how bears and humans the bear and human interaction is policed in towns where bears are encroaching back alleys of restaurants and things for the rubbish and you spend time in aspen seeing how they deal with bears tell us something about what they do well sadly what happens when a bear often a bear and cub or cubs realize uh, that there's good eating inside houses they tend to do that more than once. They become basically career burglars. And once that happens, and it happens because people, you know, they haven't secured their trash or they didn't lock the door, they left pet food out on the deck or a bird feeder that was easy to get into. So the the bears have realized, well, there's good eating here. And they decide it's easier to get food from humans than it is to search for it on the land. And those bears that keep doing this over and over and over, are considered a, a threat to public safety. And they're, if someone calls them in, 
somebody says a bear has broken into my kitchen and it happens surprisingly commonly in Pitkin County where I was in Colorado. Then the, the trap is put out. Uh, if someone calls it into Fish and Wildlife, they'll set a trap and that animal will be destroyed. So some people don't call it in. A bear will break in and ransack the refrigerator and they'll be like, you know, okay, that's a little messy and disturbing, but I don't want the bear killed. So I'm not going to do anything about it because so there's, there's two mindsets there, but um, that is, uh, that's what happens. So that's why it's so important for people to follow the law, which is that you have to have bear resistant trash containers. But even though there's a law, there's a, not a whole lot of enforcement that happens. It's also difficult. Say you've got a one trash dumpster for six or seven condos in one building and someone leaves that open, who gets the ticket? You know, nobody's going to say it was me that left it open. So that happens with restaurants sharing the same dumpster. It's just, it, there's not a lot of good enforcement. And that makes a big difference if there's no deterrent for people. You know, that if, if there's no punishment, they just go ahead and throw it in and they don't lock it up. So um, although it sounds like it would be a straightforward solution, take away the attractants, as they're called, it isn't that straightforward. You're also dealing with the waste management companies and they may have to retrofit their trucks and they don't want to spend the money. Uh, all kinds of things. Also, a lot of people in, in, around Aspen are vacationers. They're coming in to use the house for a weekend or a long, long weekend, and they don't know the consequences for the bear or they haven't been told how to use the bear-resistant container. So that complicates things uh, further in that they're, they're out of town or they don't know. They don't care. I was sort of slightly haunted by the sequence in the book where you say that the bears will often break into a house, go to the fridge, take something out the fridge, close the fridge, leave, and not trash the place. But yeah, we'll literally just yeah. go and take something out. The guy who I was driving around with, the Colorado Parks and Wildlife, is it Parks and Wildlife? They're all different. Fish and Game, Fish and Wildlife. Anyway, the Colorado guy. He, you know, we were driving around and he had bear stories, but they weren't what I imagined. You know, they weren't stories of gore and mayhem. He talked about how the bear would come through, say, the lower floor, go upstairs to the kitchen, not knocking anything over, not even leaving tracks on the white carpeting, go to the fridge, eat things a little bit messily, but sometimes, you know, picking up a carton of eggs and setting it aside. He told me uh, there was a story of a bear that had unwrapped a Hershey's Kiss. You have those there, the little chocolate with yeah. the foil wrapper. Yeah. It actually unwrapped a, a Hershey's Kiss. He said sometimes they'll pull a door off its frame and instead of just dropping it or throwing it over the side of the deck, they'll lean it carefully against the wall. They have these just very endearing qualities, bears. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Mary Roach and we're talking about her latest book, Animal, Vegetable, Criminal. And Mary, we're going to move over to India now and you talk about Elephant Awareness Camp. What is that? An awareness camp. It's basically an educational gathering in a, in a community that has uh, either elephants or leopards. We went to awareness camps in for both of these uh, animals and these were uh, this is in the north of India outside Dehradun up in the hills and over where the tea estates are and these are communities where elephants uh, or leopards are coming in and causing problems in the case of elephants they uh, elephants tend to move across the landscape over the course of a year and because of the encroachment of civilization, there's places where they've kind of gotten stuck. Somebody's put in a road or a military installation, and they, they tend to not be able to move as freely. And the food kind of food starts to run out because these elephants are huge and they eat a lot of vegetation. So when an elephant comes into a small farming community in India, it's a very upsetting thing for the people who've grown those crops because they depend on those crops, they're subsistence farmers. So when and the elephants tend to come in at night and also just walking through, they trample a lot of the plants and people get upset and angry and they rush out sometimes with a stick that's on fire. You know, I don't know what you would call that, like, like a torch, a primitive torch or with firecrackers and they freak out the elephants. The elephants tend to scatter. Uh, and when you break apart a herd, they feel very threatened. They feel uncomfortable. They're very nervous. And uh, you've got people running around and shouting and it's dark. And as my mother liked to say, somebody's going to get hurt. And people do get hurt. 500 people a year are killed by elephants in India. So what this researcher does, he's with the Wildlife Institute of India. So he sits down with people and tries to explain what to do. Ideally, you have an elephant response team and he helps people assemble one of those teams. And and they come in in a vehicle because it's much safer to be in a vehicle than on foot running around amidst a group of elephants. So he'll, so these, these response teams are trained and, and the best thing people can do is to stay indoors and call the elephant response team and have them come out and deal with the situation. So that's what happens at the awareness camp. But the awareness camp is also just, you know, never, you know, don't do this. And if, if there's somebody who's been drinking, don't let them run out and challenge the elephant because that happens fairly often. There was a news story while I was in India about a man who took on there was this group of elephants that had come in and he had been drinking and that somebody was quoted as saying he went out and confronted them and them was 18 elephants that he just thought you know because it's the liquid courage you think you know i can handle this anyway he was killed so that that happens um i think it was it's somewhere between 30 and 
40% of people killed by elephants uh, had, had been drinking. So alcohol and elephants, not a good idea, not a good mixture. You mentioned leopards in India as well, and there are stories in the book of perhaps apocryphal leopards back in the day that would kill enormous amounts of people. Yes, there's a book called The Manator of Rudraprayag by Jim Corbett, who eventually killed that animal. And there are in this region, it's the middle Himalaya, so it's not, you know, the massive snow-covered peaks, but the closer to the foothills. There are regions where leopards do, uh, with some frequency, prey on people. I mean, it's, which is a totally different scenario than we have here with mountain lions, which just don't, we're just not on the menu. Every now and then, like every 10 years in California, somebody's killed by a mountain lion, but it's um, often there's a dog involved or the animal is threatened or, you know, it's very rare that a big cat here will stalk and kill a human to eat. But that's not the case in this region where I was traveling. And there are several theories about as to why this is happening, because in other parts of India where there are leopards, they don't do this. There's people who get injured, but it's more of like they startled the cat. The cat was sleeping. They were you know, picking tea off this, you know, in a tea estate and the animal jumped up and pushed them out of the way, maybe knocked them over, scratched them. Not fatalities, but uh, up, up in the Himalaya, the middle Himalaya, this, this does happen. And there's Jim Corbett's theory, which has to do with the flu pandemic and lots of bodies being all around and the animals developing a taste for human meat that is his theory. Who knows whether that is true? What is happening these days is that the villages, there's a lot of out-migration to the cities. A lot of the men have left, that stopped farming the land there. It's tough to you know, farm a ter- you know, build terraces on steep hills and farm there. And some people have just given up and moved to the city. So there's a lot of rewilding of the landscape. So lots of uh, shrubs and brush in which uh, leopards can hide, which they need to do to hunt. They hide and sneak up. And then in a sort of quick burst, they'll run and pounce. So with fewer people to watch the livestock, um, the livestock get taken and, and uh, you know, that, that attracts, you know, the cats come in for the easy killing of livestock, you know, goats tied up by the road. That's an easy dinner. And um, unfortunately, uh, children get pounced on and, and killed and eaten as well. So that, um, that seems to be more likely what's been happening there. So it's a, it's a serious concern there in these villages, also because the kids are walking. There's no school bus, and the kids may be walking a couple kilometers to school and back at dusk. I mean, the times when when attacks happen, um, and they often happen along the road, that's when kids are are walking home. So they're you know they're advised. The parents are advised. You know, make sure your children are in a group or or meet them somehow, walk with them, don't let them be walking home alone at dusk on the road. Because, I mean, I was driving, driving into that community, you know, all along the trip that day, the researcher would be pointing out, and here in this bus stop, an old man was sitting and he was taken by a leopard. This field over here that we're passing, it was a most audacious daytime attack. Uh, several people, the leopard took one small girl, you know, just this kind of litany of mayhem and death. It's a scary situation for people there. So obviously in the past, if we had, whether it's a, you know, a bear breaking in and 
and stealing our breakfast or whether it's a you know a leopard in india killing someone on a tea plantation the obvious solution would have been to kill this animal and we would obviously prefer that that didn't happen and so one of the common techniques that's used elephants as well whatever the large animal is that's encroaching on humans one of the common things to do is simply to move it somewhere else so to you know to tranquilize that bear stick it in a box send it to a national park somewhere and this seems an obvious solution but it seems like it really doesn't work that often yeah uh, they call it translocation and something like 75 percent of american wildlife agencies will do it but uh, in that same survey, only 15% of the people who were surveyed felt that it was a good solution for a number of reasons. Uh, first, bears are astoundingly good at finding their way back home. I think that the record is 152 miles that uh, a bear has made its way back, which is extraordinary when you think about it. They're not like birds. They don't have any internal gadgetry that's, that's helping them. They may be doing it like, I don't know, this, there's a airplane sounds on this side. Maybe I go that way or the smell of the ocean. Who knows how they're doing it, but they're, they're quite good at it. And they tend to, if they, the, the young ones, will, it, it works better with a young bear who, who hasn't really gotten really heavily into a life of breaking and entering and eating human food. You know, if you can get them early in their quote criminal career, it works a little better. Um, and a bear that's used to feeding almost exclusively on human food, uh, if you put it into the woods 50 miles away and it makes its way to a community that the closest human community, it's likely to start doing the same behaviors there. And that's a problem, not only for the community, I think it's like between 40 and 66% of translocated bears started uh, getting into conflicts in their new location. But the other reason, the other thing that works against that is that the agency that translocated the bear that, that plopped it in this area is now legally responsible should that bear kill somebody or harm someone. And there's been cases where that's happened and there's been big payouts. Uh, so, you know, because the wildlife in America is it's managed by the government, by the state, the agencies. And so they're kind of legally responsible for things that happen. So they are they have concerns about getting sued if something happens. So that's also a problem. And the, the other thing, it's a, it's not easy for the animal. You, you're putting it into, you may be letting it go into another animal's turf. Uh, and the, the animal that's there may not take kindly to that. And also, you know, if it's a mother bear with cub, she's used to, she knows where the food is. She has to kind of figure that out all over again. It's, it's I mean, it's be, you know, nice to give them a second chance rather than just immediately killing them. But it, it isn't as tidy and lovely a solution as it sort of sounds like it is. We're running out of time, but I just wanted you to finish off telling us about an encounter you had personally with a macaque in India. Oh, yeah, I was, I was mugged by a macaque. <laughs> it was actually a team. It appeared to me they were working together. It was pretty slick. Uh, I was in uh, Bundi, India, which is a small city uh, near Udaipur, and uh, I kind of wanted to see what all this monkey mugging stuff was about. The monkeys are pretty aggressive in India. And so I walked up to this fort where I knew that there were a lot of monkeys in the, in the forests there and that people had said there's large groups of them. So watch out, carry a stick. So I didn't carry a stick. I carried a bag full of bananas and I just walked up the trail with a friend of mine. And um, yeah, at a certain point, this little head pops up from behind a rock as I'm walking down the trail. And, uh, and I, 
realized it was kind of like the bandits waiting for the stagecoach. It was just sort of like waiting for someone to come along. And I was that fool. So I came along and the monkey uh, steps into the path, kind of looks at me and we're checking each other out. And while we're doing that, another monkey comes up uh, from the side and just grabs the bag of bananas and takes off. I don't know if they were working as a team. One distracts you, one grabs the bananas. It's possible they were just both after my bananas. But uh, anyway, it was an interesting experience. I wouldn't say terrifying. It was basically like a purse snatch, you know, it was just over in a second. And of course I was kind of asking for it. So I've been talking to Mary Roach. We've been talking about her book, Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law, which is out in the US from Norton. And in the UK, the book is called Animal, Vegetable, Criminal, When Nature Breaks the Law. And it's out from One World. Mary, thank you so much for taking the time to tell us about it. Oh, you bet. Thank you so much, Neil. It's always a pleasure. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.